0: You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study. Unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns.
1: Welcome to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Jenny. I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I love talking about kick-ass women.
0: And I'm Josh, and I'm an audio guy, and I am... I don't think I'm ready for the holiday season just quite yet, but alas, here it is.
1: On this episode, we are talking about the genealogy of Jesus, and more specifically, some very significant and badass women who get named in that genealogy.
0: So grab a beer, a mocktail, a cup of coffee, or your beverage of choice, and join us as we explore how the Bible is more complicated and more fascinating than you might expect. Well, here we are again, one more time.
1: Yeah, welcome to Advent, Josh.
0: Oh, oh, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
1: Yeah, I like Advent. I like this season.
0: Good. That makes probably a little bit easier to deal with the busyness that you have. Yeah,
1: it's, it is busy. That is for sure. But I enjoy it. Uh, what are you drinking on this fine day?
0: You know, it's pretty early in the afternoon here. I'm just having a Mountain Dew. It's just trying to keep the energy.
1: So hang on. So we. We don't we don't drop the brand name of the red soda, but we do drop the brand name of the Mountain Dew.
0: I should have thought about that.
1: I'm just I'm just trying to figure out where the lines are drawn.
0: I'm drinking a nondescript yellow soda in a green can.
1: Um, How's that? Okay. All right. All right.
0: What about yourself?
1: <laughs> uh, I have a lovely cup of coffee. Um, it mm. is too early in the day to be drinking beer.
0: That's fair. So I know, Jenny, we promised we would do more of these, and it's time for another Kick-Ass Women.
1: I know, I'm so excited. And also, because it is uh, December, it's Advent, we're getting ready for Christmas, we are going to do a couple of episodes this month that are Christmas-themed. So we're going to be kind of looking at the origin story of Jesus, if you will.
0: I like it. Let's. Well, let's get it going. Um, Jenny, I know you're more of the expert on these. I've only just kind of quickly glanced through them, so yeah, I'm anxious to hear.
1: Okay, so we are going to start at the beginning of the New Testament, uh, the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, you know, each of the Gospels is a little bit different. Matthew starts out with this genealogy. And if you, like, are reading your Bible on your own, Honestly, your eyes probably glaze over um, as you're reading this genealogy, because it's a lot of, this person was the father of this person, who was the father of this person, who was the father of this person, and, and at a certain point, you're kind of like, uh, why do I care?
0: Yeah, I remember in school, we would just either skip it or just read it really fast.
1: Right, see how quick you can get through all those names. Mm-hmm. So, uh... Matthew is trying to do several things by including this genealogy. There's actually a a lot of sort of intention behind it. The first thing is right there in verse 1. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. So we're already making a strong claim about who Jesus is. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Obviously, both David and Abraham are figures that have huge significance in the Jewish tradition. David was the great king who united the monarchy. Um, Abraham was the patriarch, right? The, The father of not only the Jewish people, but the father of many nations. So the first thing Matthew is doing is showing how Jesus connects back to these incredibly important figures. And so the genealogy starts with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, etc. And so on and so forth until we get down to King David. And then from King David, it gives us, again, all the generations up to the time of the exile, the deportation to Babylon. And then after the deportation to Babylon... Another long set of generations, and it ends with Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So it tracks the whole genealogy down to Joseph, which is also kind of interesting, because Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, and it even says, like, Joseph, the husband of Mary... Not Joseph, the father of Jesus, but it shows that Jesus is, like, born into this household, like, born into this family line, connecting all the way back to Abraham.
0: I guess I never realized that, because I thought that would have came from Mary's line. Yeah. Because, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had people ask me about that, especially because... um, there's an understanding that Jewish identity is more matrilineal, that it like goes through the mother's line. I'm not 100% clear myself on when that practice developed. I think it came later, like after the time of the Bible. Within the Hebrew Bible and and we see here the New Testament, it's very much fathers, right? The patriarch is where the emphasis is and mm-hmm. not so much on uh, who the mother is. However, and this is a great segue, within this genealogy of all the men, all the fathers and sons, from Abraham all the way down to Joseph, there are a couple of mothers who do rate a mention. And those are the women that we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, Each one of them, again, if you're just reading through this list, probably glance right over them, each one of them is really a fascinating story in and of themselves, and it's also really interesting to see why Matthew might have chosen these women in particular, right? Because, of course, there is a mother to go with every single one of these fathers all through these generations, but Matthew only highlights a few of them, and they're very interesting. So just to run them down real quick, and then we're going to talk about each one of them. Matthew 1.3 says Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So Tamar is the mother. And then just two verses later, it says uh, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. So Rahab, that's our second mother. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So Ruth is the third mother who is named. And then, uh, in verse 6, a real interesting uh, statement. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, even if you didn't know anything about any of these characters, what does that make you think? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah.
0: It means there was some um, behind closed doors things happening, not with the husband and wife.
1: Mm-hmm. There was some drama happening, right? This is like an uh, ancient edition of Mori of like, yeah! who really is the father?
0: And then he does that dance and then it's all, well, I guess he wasn't really uh... dancing, was he? <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh. So we're going to obviously get into this, but even just the way that Matthew chooses to state it, the woman here is not named. Her name is Bathsheba. She's kind of got a reputation, which we'll talk about. It's very undeserved. But even to like phrase it this way, right? Like This is the family tree of the Messiah, like the main character of the gospel, the most important figure in the Christian faith. And even within this genealogy, Matthew's like, oh, yeah, you remember King David? You remember how he slept with another man's wife? Yeah, that's part of this story, too. So we start to immediately get a hint that uh, the women that are named here are, they're a little outside of the ordinary, so to speak.
0: They're pretty significant.
1: They are pretty significant, for sure. So, are you ready to dive in, Josh?
0: Yes, I'm ready. Let's go, um. I'm excited.
1: Let's do it. I'm excited, too. These are great stories and definitely like lesser known, uh, I think, for a lot of folks. All right. So we got to start with Tamar. What we read in Matthew is that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So jumping back to the book of Genesis, this story unfolds in Genesis 38, And just to kind of orient us in terms of where we are in Genesis at this point, um, I think most folks will remember you had Jacob and Esau, the twins, and they were always like butting heads. Jacob pulled a lot of uh, stunts on his brother Esau. There was some conflict. And then eventually Jacob ends up having 12 sons. And at least one daughter. There's one daughter who's named in Genesis. But he has all these kids, and we get the whole story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, uh, which at least if you were, like, a nerdy, pseudo-religious kid like me, or really into Broadway, like, you just know it from the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, where all all the brothers are named. And at one point in my life, I, like, knew all the lyrics of, like, all of these... All of these brothers of Joseph. Mm-hmm. And all the colors. Azure.
0: Oh ochre, my gosh. Chocolate
1: I learned a lot of vocabulary from that. Mm-hmm. A lot of color words, yeah. Good times. <laughs> so Judah is one of those brothers. So Judah like figures pretty prominently in the story of Joseph. Like what happens to Joseph? His brothers betray him. They sell him into slavery. They fake his death. It's kind of a big mess. But Judah has another um, kind of important piece of the story, uh, which takes place in Genesis 38. And this part has nothing to do with Joseph or the amazing Technicolor dreamcoat. So what happens in Genesis 38? uh, Judah marries a canaanite he has some sons um i think three sons yeah um so judah is like starting a family he's you know procreating blah 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 um but then some stuff starts to kind of go sideways for their family so it says this is genesis 38 verse 7 Er Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, who's the second son, "Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, raise up offspring for your brother." But since Onan knew that this offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Just a real fun little Christmas story.
0: <laughs> la 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 la
1: So the the principle that's at play here is uh, sometimes called leverate marriage. Basically, the idea is inheritance is passed down from father to son. But if a man dies without an heir, then his brother... Is supposed to impregnate the the widow and that child will be the heir for the one who died right so if you know John and James are brothers and John dies without an heir James is going to get John's widow pregnant and then that child will be considered John's heir and will inherit and, like, carry on that part of the family tree. So this is, like, obviously a pretty foreign concept in modern, like, family structures. But from what I understand, it was not uncommon in the ancient Near East. If you think about it, people tended to die uh, younger. People, children tended to die, not make it to adulthood. And so this question of, like, securing an heir is pretty important so we we see this in play here but then we also have this problem where the brother is like i don't wanna i don't want to produce an heir that's not going to be mine it's going to be my dead brothers and so onan spills his seed on the ground instead of you know putting it somewhere else so god then knocks off onan too Uh, So Judah has lost two sons and is probably thinking about his own uh, sort of inheritance and family line. So Judah says to Tamar, uh, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. Shelah is the third son. Kind of Judah's last chance. He needs to keep this one alive. So Tamar goes and went to live in her father's house. Women at this time patriarchal society needed to be sort of under the protection of some male relative. Your father, your husband, your son, if you're elderly and your your husband has died. So Tamar is kind of in this bind. She doesn't have a husband anymore. She doesn't have a son. And her father-in-law is like, listen, just go back to your family's house and like, we'll figure it out. Tamar is not Thrilled with this plan, and she doesn't like uh sitting around waiting for somebody uh to you know give her a son. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. So Tamar hears, hey, your father-in-law, Judah, the one who sort of sent you away. Judah is going out to shear his sheep. Tamar takes off her like mourning garments, dresses herself up nice. And she sees that this third son, Shelah, is grown up, but he has not been sent to, like, do this Leveret marriage, produce an heir, etc. And so, at this point, Tamar's pissed. When Judah sees Tamar, he thinks that she's a prostitute. He goes over to hire her, not knowing that this is his daughter-in-law. Oh, (laughs) jeez. This story is wild. It's absolutely longers so he is like i would like to hire you for your services uh and she says okay like what are you gonna pay me uh he says i will um give you one of the animals from my flock and she basically says okay but like i need a what's the word a deposit (laughs) she's like give me a pledge so that I know you're actually going to send this animal, and so he says okay, and she says all right. Give me your signet and your cord and the staff that's in your hand, and he says fine. He gives her these things. They have sex. She gets pregnant, and then she goes back to her prior uh, sort of circumstance. Then Judah sends this this animal from the flock to pay his bill but he can't find this prostitute anymore so he asks around like hey has anybody seen that like sex worker and they're like no there's no like there aren't any sex workers here and (laughs) judah is like uh okay well i tried to pay her so like nobody can say that i didn't do you know what i was supposed to do and then the news comes around a couple months later that Tamar is pregnant. And you have to imagine that this was like the juiciest gossip in town, right? Like, Tamar's husband died. Her brother in law wouldn't do his like responsibility of giving her an heir. Her father in law sent her away and now she's pregnant. Like, who's the father? Get it on Maury. That's
0: some some small town bullshit yes, right there.
1: Absolutely. Here. Absolutely. And so basically people go back to Judah and they're like, hey, your daughter-in-law slept around. And Judah's like, I'm going to have this lady killed. And Tamar, who is brilliant, I have to assume from how she, like, navigates this situation, she sends a message to Judah. And she says, the person who got me pregnant, the father of this unborn baby... Uh, is the one who gave me this signet and cord and staff. And Judah realizes that he is the one who hired, he thought, a prostitute and got her pregnant. And so Judah then realizes this was not Tamar sleeping around. This was actually him sleeping around and him not you know, taking care of his daughter-in-law in the way that he was supposed to as like the head of the family. And so in verse 26, Judah acknowledged this and said, she is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So at the end of this whole like small town, big drama situation, Judah's like, yeah, Tamar is, Tamar is in the right. I fucked up. This is this is my bad. This is not her. And she ends up having twins. They talk about uh who these these twins were and which one was born first. But it's interesting like within just this narrative in Genesis, Tamar is vindicated. Like at the end of the story, it's like, no, she wasn't You know, she wasn't some immoral woman who, like, did bad things. Like, the narrative is clear. Like, Judah himself says, no, she's in the right and I'm in the wrong. So even though, like, obviously the sort of legal and familial principles are really different than what we're used to today, I do think it's interesting to see how Tamar, who was in really challenging circumstances, sort of uses her wits to get out of the situation, preserve her own life, and ensure her future, right? By actually having sons who are gonna take care of her in her old age. And that the the biblical narrative is like, yeah, she she was right. Hmm. She did the right thing. She doesn't get punished. She doesn't get shamed, right? Like God struck down two of these brothers because they were doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And Tamar's fine. So clearly God did not, like, disapprove of Tamar. So Tamar's a fascinating story. And then the fact that Matthew mentions her in the genealogy, right? Matthew could have just said Judah was the father of Perez, moving right along. But he specifies Judah was the father of Perez by his own daughter-in-law, by Tamar. Mm Mm-hmm. Which the, the original audience of Matthew would have absolutely known that story. For us, it's like, who's Tamar? But they would have been like, oh, that juicy story. We know who Tamar is. Good for her. Judah slept with his own daughter-in-law.
0: Like, just, and it's not like she went there to trick him. He just, his own stupidity led him to believe <laughs> that she was a prostitute. Because he couldn't keep himself under control. Dummy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, Tamar is in such a bind because she's in a society and a culture where she doesn't have any agency, right? Like, she is dependent on the men in her life, and the men in her life are either dead or have screwed her over, and she still manages to navigate that with, like, her limited uh, sort of social capital of basically just being able to... Blackmail might be a strong word, but, like, drag her father-in-law out into the daylight and say, like, here's what he did.
0: Yeah, he didn't fulfill his end of the bargain either. Like, the first part, like, the youngest son should have...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, like... At this point, our listeners are probably thinking, this is a Christmas episode? Yes.
0: Fa-la-la-la-la.
1: La-la-la-la. Yeah, because the Charlie Brown Christmas, as much as I love it, is not actually the way that the birth of Jesus is told in the Bible. Just like we say at the top of every episode, the Bible is more complicated than you would expect. So we are going to talk about the matriarchs, the foremothers of Jesus, and there are some wild stories. I dig it. Yeah. Are you ready to go to Joshua and our friend Rahab?
0: Yes, I, I am. Um, Just to close out, Tamar, like, one of the first, I mean, not the first one we've talked about from the beginning of the Bible, but obviously important enough that keeps getting mentioned after the fact, too. It wasn't just the original story. It was also included later to make you think back on it.
1: And even, like, just For a woman to be named in a biblical story is already noteworthy because the society was very biased towards men over women. So any time a woman is named, it's like, oh, that's pretty significant. And certainly for Matthew in the midst of all of these fathers and sons to be like, remember Tamar, uh, remember Rahab, like it's important.
0: Well, let's get to learning about Rahab then. Cause let's
1: learn about Rahab.
0: On to the book of Joshua.
1: Yes, we are in the book of Joshua. Uh, I assume your favorite book of the Bible.
0: Um, It's up there, although it does stress me out when it's said, because just my full name just always like makes me freeze up.
1: It's like, oh shit, what did I do?
0: <laughs> what? Oh no, that wasn't anything about me.
1: So again, just a little bit of like context, uh, the book of Joshua is telling the story of how the people entered into the promised land after the Exodus. So we have the Exodus, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies because none of Moses's generation is allowed to enter the promised land because of the golden calf incident. So not even Moses himself gets to make it to the promised land. He gets to just the very, very edge of it and can see the promised land. Like it is within eyesight and then he dies.
0: What did Moses do? Did he try like, perform a miracle without God's permission? Or I'm trying to remember what specific it was. Like, Did he make water come from a rock, didn't give glory, and then God's like, hey, what the hell? Like I've been carrying you for this long.
1: You are 100% right, Josh, and I did not remember this. Boo, 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 boo. <laughs> uh, this is back in the book of Numbers. God tells Moses to uh, speak to the rocks to get water, but Moses doesn't do what God says and instead uh, strikes the rock with a staff, and because he didn't... Follow God's commandment. He didn't obey God. He is also sort of subject to punishment. Oh, not, I don't know. Punishment might be too strong a word, but uh, he's not allowed to enter the promised land.
0: Yeah. I mean, that feels like a punishment. Like I, you did all this work. You got these people out of Egypt and now you're going to get right there. You can, you can almost taste it, but that was self-inflicted.
1: Yes. So Moses dies it is time to enter the promised land. The promised land is occupied. Like, people are living there. It's the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, like my seminary professor used to say. All those ites. Uh, all these different tribes and and groups that are living in this land that God has promised to the people of Israel. And now it is time for the people of Israel to take over Uh, and kick out all of these other residents of the land, which is definitely not parallel to any contemporary geopolitical problems. In the book of Joshua, you see Joshua, who was sort of Moses' assistant, then rises to the position of leadership after Moses' death, and Joshua leads the people through this conquering of the promised land. And the kind of first big piece of that is the city of Jericho. And so you might remember the story of the walls of Jericho. They marched around the city for, what is it, six days. And then on the seventh day, they blew the trumpet blasts and the the walls came tumbling down. Before that, uh, Jericho is the first uh, settlement or city that they head into And they send some scouts first. So they they send a couple of spies uh, to sort of figure out, okay, what's going on in Jericho? What's the situation? And these spies encounter Rahab. So this is Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. The king of Jericho said, some Israelites have come here to search out the land. So the the king of Jericho knows there are spies in our midst. The king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. Now Rahab is faced with a choice. She's got these spies that are hiding out in her house, and she's got the king of her city saying, hand them over. Who is she going to be loyal to? In uh, Joshua 2, chapter 4, it says, But the woman, Rahab, took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan. Uh, As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So it's that classic, uh, like, chase scene where the, you know, the guards or whatever run up and say, do you see which way they went? And the character says, they went that way. But in fact, she's got the, you know, whoever hidden. So that's what Rahab does. She tells um, her own people, oh, they left the city. You better hurry and catch them. They all run out of the city. And because it's nightfall, the gates are closed. So now they're locked out of the city overnight. And she's sent them on a wild goose chase. So then Rahab goes up to talk to the spies and says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. So basically, Rahab is declaring her allegiance to God. She says, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. So all of these different tribes in the ancient Near East worshiped different gods. They were probably polytheistic. They had all their own sort of religious practices. But Rahab here says, no, I, I'm siding with your god because I've heard what your god can do. Crossing the Red Sea, bringing you out of Egypt, all of these, you know, triumphs that you've had. So she's like, I believe in your god. Your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. And then she says, Since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And the men said to her, Our life for yours. If you do not tell this business of ours, then we will deal kindly and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land. So Rahab says, I know that you're going to win because your god is, is the true god, is powerful. I've helped you out, so, like, don't kill my whole family when you conquer this city. And the spies say, yeah, as long as you don't sell us out, we will make sure that you and your family are safe. And that's exactly what they do. So she helps them get out of the city. They agree on this, like, signal uh, which is that she's going to tie a crimson cord in the window and that'll be like, you know, the way that they communicate when they come to take the city. And they do. They tell Joshua the whole story. Joshua leads the the army to approach Jericho and they do the thing with the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. And Joshua says to the spies, okay, now go in and find uh, this, this woman, find Rahab and her family that you promised uh, would, would make it out safe, which is exactly what they do. So in Joshua chapter 6, we see the kind of conclusion of the story. Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house, bring the woman out of it, and all who belong to her as you swore to her. They bring them out, the whole family, uh, and then they conquer the city. And it says, Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, Joshua spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So again, we see like, here is a woman, first of all, here's a woman in a man's world, so to speak, right? Like in a patriarchal society. Doesn't have a lot of agency, doesn't have a lot of power. Also, she's a sex worker. And there, you know, the culture was different, but I think that there is still sort of a judgment that comes along with, like, being a sex worker, even in uh, the biblical world. She's also a foreigner in the sense that she's not an Israelite. I mean, like, she was in Jericho before the Israelites were, but she's a non-Israelite. But she declares her loyalty to the God of Israel. She helps these spies... And so, when they're victorious, they protect her and her family, and they become sort of part of the people of Israel, right? They become a part of the community that continues to live uh, in that place.
0: I want to point out like I think people might gloss over the point like, oh, yeah, they're not they're not here. They left like if they would have searched her house and found them, like that would have been. Not just it for her, but I'm sure her whole family would have been probably murdered at some point, executed, as a sign of betraying the city. Like, that was a huge risk that she took for these two strangers, but believing her faith was so strong that it didn't even cross her mind. It was just, nope, this is what I'm going to do. What a badass lady.
1: She's pretty kick ass, right? Mm-hmm. And this is definitely uh, like a theme in the Hebrew Bible that you'll see these non-Israelites who will sometimes declare allegiance to God and say like, "Your God is the the God," right? Like the Lord is is where it's at, and that sort of uh, you, I guess you could call it a conversion, although it's you know it's different than the way we think of conversion today. But that is generally looked upon very favorably by the Hebrew Bible, and so you get these figures like Rahab, who becomes a sort of hero, and a lot of it has to do with, well, she had faith in the Lord, and that is kind of the defining thing. Like, maybe it doesn't matter quite as much what tribe you came from, if you are loyal to God, then uh, God will sort of look favorably on you. Imagine that. Right?
0: It's almost like, hey, don't judge people by where they come from. Yeah. Hmm. huh? Maybe, maybe a lesson we yeah. should uh, observe today. <laughs> I don't know. Just throwing it out there.
1: So jumping back again to our genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, we had Rahab, who was a non-Israelite becomes sort of a part of the people, uh, and she is the father of Boaz. And then Boaz is uh, an important figure in the story of another biblical woman, Ruth. And so Matthew's genealogy continues, uh, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth is a very cool character, uh, one of the few women in the Bible who actually gets a book named after her. It's Ruth and Esther, uh, and then if you include the Apocrypha, or if you're Roman Catholic, uh, you have Judith, who we've already talked about. Not a lot of women get uh, whole books named after them in the biblical canon, but Ruth does, and Ruth's story is also really interesting. If you haven't read the book of Ruth, it's very short, it's a quick read, and, and I recommend just checking it out, but Uh, Ruth is is also a foreigner, and so the story of Ruth is that there was a famine, and a man from Bethlehem, um, so an Israelite, left the area because of this famine, so he was sort of uh, what we would call today a climate refugee, and he goes and lives in the country of Moab. And so Moab was another one of these uh, kind of small kingdoms in the, the area of uh, Judah. So he goes to live in Moab with his wife and his sons. And the sons take uh, Moabite wives. This is always sort of a touchy subject in the Hebrew Bible. There are points in the Hebrew Bible where taking wives from other tribes is fine and then there are points in the Hebrew Bible where taking wives from other tribes is very not fine and is like deeply punished there's a lot of kind of culture and history wrapped up in that that uh we're probably not going to have time to get into today but short story is at least here in the book of Ruth it's not a bad thing it's not portrayed as as a problem necessarily So the the father of this family, who is named Elimelech, he dies. So his wife, Naomi, is left in Moab with her sons. Again, if you're a woman, you need to have a male family member who's kind of taking care of you. She's got her sons. This is fine. The sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons also die. So now you have Naomi, who has no husband and no sons, and also no grandsons, because apparently um, the Moabites, the Moabite women, had not given birth to heirs either. Naomi, who is the, the widow, is faced with a really difficult situation. As I said, she doesn't have any male relatives who are going to be able to take care of her. She's not even living in the land of Israel, where her people would be. She's in Moab. And so she decides to pick up and move. She's going to go back to Judah, which is where her sort of extended family would be. But at the beginning of the book of Ruth, uh, this is verse eight, chapter one, verse eight, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's house May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. So Naomi basically says, go back to your own people. Hopefully you can remarry. I hope that God takes care of you, but like we have to go our separate ways. One of the two daughters-in-law agrees. There's a little bit of kind of cajoling that happens they're like no we'll stay with you and she's like no really go back to your own people and so one of them Orpah goes back to her own people to her like Moabite tribe but Ruth refuses and there's this beautiful poem in Ruth chapter one there's this beautiful passage where uh Ruth declares her loyalty and I love this it's I mean it's beautiful I also find it very funny that it is often read at weddings as, like, a declaration of loyalty from one spouse to the other, whereas it's actually a daughter-in-law declaring loyalty to her mother-in-law, and I just, I'm kind of tickled by that. Uh, So Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. So Ruth says, basically, she is ride or die for Naomi. She is going to stay with Naomi wherever Naomi goes. And similar to what we saw with Rahab, she also declares her loyalty to Naomi's God, right? She says, your God is my God. I'm going to follow the God that you worship. And so Naomi's like, okay, I'm clearly not going to, you know, talk you out of this. Uh, And so they go back to Bethlehem, which is where Naomi had come from. Very sweet story so far. It's going to get a little weird here in a moment, but uh, they go back to Bethlehem. They're still kind of in this bind because they don't have that male relative who is going to take care of them. They're both widows. They don't have any sons. Um, Naomi is of a pretty advanced age at this point, so it's pretty likely that her own father is dead. So they've kind of got no one. And they go, uh, back to Bethlehem. Naomi does have a more distant relative, right? Not a father or a brother or a husband, but uh, maybe a cousin. She has a kinsman, a man named Boaz, Uh, who was apparently pretty wealthy. He's like a landowner um, and he has like hired laborers and stuff. So this is like, he's not a subsistence farmer. He's got a pretty good operation going. And Naomi's like, okay, like Boaz doesn't really owe us anything because we're not that closely related, but he's not gonna, he's not gonna like screw us over. Like he's, he's a decent guy. And there is a law for the people of Israel that they have to leave some of the crop behind basically for impoverished people. So when you are harvesting your crop, you have to leave a little bit sort of around the edges for this uh, concept of gleaning, which would be if somebody is really, truly impoverished and has nothing, they can go just take the extra bit of the crop for themselves this is something that god dictates and says like this is how you have to to be because god cares about all the people uh god is not you know driven by shareholder profits <laughs> uh the way that our modern society is so god is like you have to leave a little bit at the edges let people take enough food to live because that's just, like, the just thing to do.
0: Interesting. I never... I don't remember hearing about that very much, because that is Mm-hmm. ...just makes sense.
1: hmm So Ruth basically says to Naomi, like, okay, I'm going to go out and glean in the fields. I'm going to collect a little bit of food for the two of us, right? The, the idea here is that, like, Naomi is pretty elderly, and so Ruth is almost being the caretaker for her mother-in-law, right? Because Naomi can't go out in the fields and try to pick, uh, food or whatever. So Ruth is like, I'm going to go get food. I will make sure that we have enough to eat. And she goes and she's gleaning in the field and, uh, she's in a field that belongs to Boaz. Boaz, uh, says to his, uh, servants who are harvesting the crop, basically, who is this, this woman? right and they say she is the moabite who came back with naomi from moab so basically like she's this foreigner but she kind of has a family connection and that's why she's here and ruth says you know just let me glean a little bit from your fields and has been uh doing this all day and boaz says okay ruth listen don't go to any other field Stay and and pick uh, your food from this field that I own. I've told my servants not to bother you. You can go and get a drink of water from the water that they draw. So he basically says, like, I'm going to make sure you're OK. Right. He is uh, sort of going above and beyond. Right. Because the the bare minimum is you have to let people glean if they're poor and starving. And Boaz goes a little bit beyond that. He says, I'm going to make sure you're okay. Don't go off to some other field where people might harass you. Like, stay here and, and we'll make sure you're all right. And Ruth is like, thank you. Um, And goes back and tells Naomi. Naomi <laughs> says, I have an idea. Naomi says, Boaz is actually a relative, right? Like, he was my dead husband's cousin of some, you know, degree. And if he's already sort of been nice to you, then we can, we can work this angle, so to speak. And so Naomi tells Ruth, get yourself all dressed up, look nice, anoint yourself with oil, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, right, where they're like processing the harvest, Uh, And then when Boaz uh, lies down for the night, Naomi says, uh, this is Ruth three, verse four, go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. In the Hebrew Bible, feet is sometimes a euphemism for something else. And it is pretty likely in this case that they're not actually talking about feet. So Naomi says, get done up real nice Wait until Boaz goes to sleep, and then go get under the covers with him and kind of see what happens. And that is exactly what she does. And Boaz is like, whoa, who are you? And she's like, I'm Ruth. Basically, okay, like I'm I'm into you. And I will I will marry you, which is partly sort of a responsibility, kind of like the Leverett marriage back in Genesis, of like well, because he is distantly related to Naomi, he does have some sort of obligation to help take care of these women. And so Boaz says like, yeah, I, I, will, I will take you in. I will, you know, bring you into my household. But there is actually another relative who's even closer who would sort of have the first responsibility of that. So basically we need to go talk to this other guy. They do. The other guy is like, no, I don't really want to marry this Moabite and take her in and have to take care of her and her mother-in-law. And so Boaz is, is the one who, who does it. Boaz takes in Ruth the Moabite, takes in Naomi, and then receives the inheritance that should have gone to Naomi's sons. So there's this whole, like, land transfer legal transaction thing that happens but it also has very much to do with like the well-being of these two women who have been kind of left out in the cold so ruth is a cool story ruth is not you know it's not quite as salacious as like what happens with tamar Uh, but it is notable again that this is a foreigner right and she ends up being is it the grandmother or great-grandmother of King David? She's just like a couple generations back from King David. So, you know, again, a foreigner, a, uh, a Moabite woman, came from another place, entered into the kind of community of the people of Israel, and ends up being a really important part of the story because she is, uh, yes, the great-grandmother of King David.
0: And she just was that, that loyalty she had to Naomi. Just that, no, we're family. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm going to stay with you, take care of you, do everything you need me to.
1: Yeah, truly ride or die, right? Mm-hmm. The, the story of the Book of Ruth is a, a story of really powerful bond between these two women. That they, they take care of each other when there is no one else to take care of them. Um, and it's it's actually a pretty beautiful story. I know that this episode is going pretty long, but we've got to talk about Bathsheba before we wrap it up. And this is the one that we mentioned in Matthew. She is not named, but it's uh, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I will kind of summarize briefly. Bathsheba gets a bad rap. The sort of narrative around her is that she was this, like, temptress, and she, like, seduced King David. That's not what the story says. Um, if you want to go read it, it's in Second Samuel uh, chapters 11 and 12. What actually happens in the story is that Bathsheba is bathing, and she's bathing, like, in her own home. It may have been in sort of an open air kind of place, But she's, like, in a place where you would expect to have privacy, and David sees her bathing. And so, you know, maybe David is not quite as bad as, like, a peeping Tom, but, you know, if you accidentally walked in on someone changing, like, the correct response is to be like, oh, I'm so sorry, and then, like, look away, (laughs) right? Right. That's not what David does. David sees Bathsheba bathing and is like, I want to hit that. And so, like, summons her. David is the king of Israel. And it doesn't matter, like, how strong willed or, you know, virtuous a person you are. Like, Bathsheba does not have the power to say no. If the king summons you, you can't say no. He has all the power in that situation. So she goes, they sleep together. She gets pregnant. Now David has a problem because Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is off at war. And if Uriah comes home from war and his wife is pregnant, he's going to have some questions. So David hatches a plan. He calls Uriah back to the city, like away from the front, and says, You are so great. Like, you, you've you been such a good—I think he's like a general or whatever. He's a, a leader in the army. He says, you've been doing such a great job. I just wanted you to have a break. You know, go have dinner with your wife. You know, spend some time together. Because David's thinking, if Uriah also sleeps with his wife, then he'll just assume the baby is his. But Uriah's like, no, 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 I couldn't do that. Like, all of of my men are still on the front lines. They're missing their homes. They're missing their wives. Like, it wouldn't be fair of me to sleep with my wife when they're still out there like fighting so he says no he won't do it so then david's like fuck bathsheba's pregnant and uriah hasn't slept with her this is gonna this is gonna blow up on me and so uh david hatches a new plan which is that he sends uriah back to the front line with like a sealed message and the sealed message tells the other commanders put uriah in front have him like lead the charge and then pull everyone else back so he literally sets uriah up completely betrays him sets him up to get killed and lo and behold he is so now there's no uriah to come back from the war and be like hey who impregnated my wife and so david is able to he thinks get away with it it turns out god knows what he did And there is a fabulous interaction where the prophet Nathan comes to David and is like, you fucker, like, how dare you? And just completely uh, demolishes him. That baby that Bathsheba has, that child actually ends up dying, and it's it's presented as, like, this is the consequence of, like, this terrible thing that David did. I don't want to at all suggest that, like, Losing a pregnancy or losing a child is a punishment for anyone, but, like, in the context of the story, that is how it's presented. But Bathsheba ends up being taken as one of David's wives and does end up having a son named Solomon, and Solomon, as we know, ends up being the heir to David's throne, which is a whole other story because Solomon was not the firstborn. There's a lot of like Game of Thrones kind of politicking that happens. But Bathsheba gets such a bad rap because she gets portrayed as like, this was her fault somehow. It's not her fault. It is never the victim's fault. David has more power than her, and she is just sort of forced to go along with this.
0: Yeah, I don't remember ever hearing this story as, personally, as a... Negative to Bathsheba. I've always heard it as a negative to King David.
1: Okay, good. That's how it should be.
0: <laughs> because yeah, she was taking a bath. He saw her. I was like, no, I I want her. And then is like, well, I got to deal with her husband. Well, he's not gonna fall for it. Well, screw it.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have him murdered. put him in the front. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. But without me technically doing it, but actually doing it. Yeah. So yeah, I think if anything, this proves the humanity, like, the bad side of humanity of King David.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like,
0: and showing that tempted and gave into those st- stupid and terrible thoughts. Yeah. And, yeah, she was just a victim. Uh, she had no choice. Like, you said, like, yeah. what do you do? Oh, I could do this, or I'm going to probably be imprisoned or executed, or both. Mm-hmm. And my husband could get repercussions if I don't. But then he gets repercussions because... She had to. Like, there was just, it was a no-win situation.
1: It's totally a no-win situation for Bathsheba. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Kind of ruins my Bathsheba joke, I was going to (laughs) tell. But.
1: Uh, Might be in poor taste.
0: It is. But, yeah, I've never, at least from my experience, never heard it as a negative towards her. She was just there.
1: All right, cool. It,
0: It could have been anybody. Yeah. That he was just wandering, looked out the window, and was like, okay.
1: Right, I'm into it. Yeah, man, honestly, David sucks. Yeah, This is maybe a controversial opinion. He is sort of a huge heroic figure in the Hebrew Bible, but man, I don't like him.
0: Yeah, uh, just kind of like a lot of people. A lot of, you're like, oh, that's great, that person was great. And then you kind of learn about some of their personal stuff, and you're like, oh. Right. But I liked them. Yeah. Yeah. See a lot with actors and actresses and athletes. Like, ah,
1: it's almost like the people. It's almost like the people who amass a huge amount of wealth and power tend to have really toxic traits that mm-hmm. allow them to do that.
0: Well, and just the fact that like it wasn't like, oh, I feel so guilty that I did this thing. It was like, ah, shit, I don't want to deal with the rumors around this.
1: Right, I want to get away with it. I don't want to get caught. To bring it back um, to the genealogy in Matthew, all of these stories are in the Hebrew Bible. They would have been familiar to Matthew's original readers, Uh, but the fact that Matthew chooses to name these women, right, Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into impregnating her, Rahab, who was a sex worker and a foreigner, Ruth, who was a foreigner, and Bathsheba who was the victim of rape the victim of David's desire for her those are the women that get specifically named as Matthew is setting the scene for Jesus and then of course you know if you keep reading the the very first thing that happens after the genealogy is that Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant and it's not his baby and so you see the kind of continuation of these themes of just because something looks scandalous or looks salacious, actually God uses those situations and uses those people and values those people that Tamar and Rahab and Ruth get to end up being heroes in this broader narrative, and so does Mary. What starts out for Mary as, like, a very scandalous story, and Joseph is going to dismiss her and, you know, send her away. But no, this is actually exactly what God intends. God is moving through these women who are maybe looked at kind of askance by society of, like, oh, she's a sex worker. Oh, she's a foreigner. Oh, she got pregnant out of wedlock. God is using these exact people to do something really remarkable. So I, I really like the sort of layers you uncover as you dig into the genealogy in Matthew, that there's actually a lot there that you kind of just miss if you just skip over all these names, like, oh my gosh, there's so many names, I don't know what to do with this. Right. Uh, but Matthew, I think, is actually making a really important point.
0: Yeah. I also want to point out, just since we're going to wrap up the the Bathsheba story. Um, if you are in the United States, if you or someone you know has been a victim, there is help out there. I'm gonna give the phone number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline. If you ever need to talk, you should call, you should reach out. It's 1-800-656-4673. Again, 1-800-656-4673. You are not alone. And you are a victim. you are not at fault. Just want to point that out, like, Bathsheba, you did nothing wrong. Your outfit choice did nothing wrong.
1: I really appreciate that, Josh. Yeah, because obviously these are still problems that we face today. and yeah if uh if you have been uh victimized, reach out, get help. It's mm-hmm. not your fault. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now I'm trying to think of a fun way to close the show out, but I I kind of burn it down.
1: Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't, I don't think we need to, we don't need to end on a jokey note. Um, I I would just say, not only are you not alone, but God sees you, right? God remembers your story. God knows what really happened. And, uh, and I think that's important too, Mm -hmm. that, Uh, The the women in this genealogy, they were not forgotten by God, and and neither is any of us.
0: And yeah, and history is remembering and showing that, nope, they're still here. They're still, they overcame those horrible, some of them horrible obstacles and continued on. Jenny, thank you so much for doing all the legwork for this, because I know this is a subject that I'm really interested in, and I just love listening to talk about it.
1: Thank you. I really like getting to talk about it, so you're doing me a favor.
0: Uh, Well, then it works out for both of
1: us. (laughs) It sure does.
0: I just want to thank everybody for listening. And again, this is going to be a continuing series we're going to do about kick-ass women of the Bible. Thank you for tuning in. And if you're listening to this during the Christmas season or Advent season, you know, just have Happy holidays.
1: Happy holidays.
0: Whatever you do, whoever you are, I hope you have a great December and holiday season. Thanks for listening to Irreverent Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash Bible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.